All right, well, welcome. I'm the substitute apologetics teacher today. Sam is up at the youth retreat teaching our youth all weekend. How'd it go, Paul? You did a good job, Yeah. yeah. Really Praise God. Hmm. Praise God. I don't know that one most important thing. Is. Yeah. Amen. Well, let's pray to open our time. We can pray for Sam and for the youth while we're there, while we're praying, um, that God would work in their hearts too. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the life and hope that we have in, through your Son, Jesus Christ, that our sins can be forgiven, that we can know you, that we can have a hope that is stronger than any suffering or trial that we face in this life. And I pray that you would help us this morning as we um, consider the reasonableness of the Christian faith compared to an evolutionary worldview. I pray that you would just strengthen us in our confidence in the truth of your word, that we could be winsome defenders of it and, and winsome in sharing the gospel with others who lack that hope, who are without God and without hope in a dark world. I also pray for Sam and the youth this morning that you would continue to bless their time, that you would help Sam to be clear and have strong conviction as he's sharing from your word this morning. And we pray for fruit in the lives of, of the young people that are hearing from him. We pray that your word would be powerful and would bear much fruit in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, welcome. Um, I think this is our fourth your fourth week here. I was actually hoping maybe you could I've got a, well, so I've got a 51-minute video that I'm going to share um, from a professor who did a talk at the Master's Seminary in a chapel service. Uh, he's from the Institute of Creation Research. So, And the, ta- the title, as you can see, is Engaging the Evolutionist. So before we dive into that, I was hoping maybe you could share with me. I'm the new one here. I actually, I listened to a little bit of it, but I haven't been to any of the classes yet. So maybe you can, by way of refresher, you can help me. What is apologetics? The first question. Hopefully that's an easy one. What is apologetic? Lisa's ready to answer it. How that look? Oh, I'm, I'm not, it won't be it. It won't be right. Well, all right, well. And then you're apologizing. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Marcus. A defense of the faith. Defense of the faith, right. It comes from the Greek word apologia. just means to defend the faith. And uh, does anyone remember the Bible, the verse that we kind of use as a foundation for that concept of making a defense for the faith? Ready to have an answer. 1 Peter 3.15, um, where... Peter says, In your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Sam, I think, talked about in one of his second, maybe a second talk, about just the posture we should have in this engagement with people, the, the, way, the way we should approach it. Would anyone want to share just a, a summary, high-level summary of that, of what the kind of posture we should have? So it's our first time. Okay, your first time. So I keep looking at Tim like you go, <laughs> make a, yeah, right. One of humility and realizing that it's by God's grace that He gave us the truth. Right. And so the moment we start arguing so that we can be right, we lost the battle. Right. Completely. Just humbly trying to help people understand. Right. Yeah, and I think that's very important. Paul's saying it's just the importance of being humble in, in our approach. Remembering we're not dealing with just arguments. We're dealing with humans. And, and humans aren't, aren't like machines that you, you, know, you give them the right information and then you, you turn the crank and then they believe or they, they think logically through their, and they come to the same conclusions. I mean, you know, we can be a very off-putting at times if we approach apologetics, if we approach people with a, a confrontational attitude. So and that's especially, I think, helpful to remember as we think about this topic, um, 
we set us, um, you know, evolution and creation can oftentimes be polarizing, can often just come to an impasse, as it were, just from the way that we approach it. So I don't, I, I'm not an expert in this field by any means. Um, this gentleman, Randy Gulizia, I think is how you say his name, he's, he's an expert. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to him and then we'll have a few minutes for discussion at the end. All of us at ICR just have such high regard for the Master Seminary. It's, it's really an honor to just be a part of your chapel today. Now, I'm going to do something which I normally don't do before this talk. I want to look at a piece of scripture with you guys first before I do the talk. So please open up your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And this passage is, is probably the most applicable in this day and age when you're talking to someone about this whole issue of origins. And it's a very, very encouraging passage, even though in Romans chapter 1, Paul puts the entire world under condemnation. As you already know, I'm speaking to this august body of theologians. I hope I'm not just repeating something that you already know. But the condemnation actually begins in verse 18, where he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold, literally, who suppress hold down, like in a stranglehold, the truth and unrighteousness. But here's the key verses I wanted to emphasize, which are so encouraging. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead. And why this is so encouraging is because when you talk to anybody, maybe someone in your congregation in the future or anybody out there about origins, and you just hold up your hand and you move your fingers like this, you can know for certain that they see the design. You don't have to wonder do they see the design. The scripture says, the Lord has made it what? Clearly seen. Clearly seen. So no matter what's coming out of their mouth, as far as I don't believe it, or I don't believe it, or I don't see it, you know deep in their heart that they are seeing it. And you know what else it says? It says God has manifest himself in them. He has shown himself in them by the things that he has made through the creation of the world. So all of the design that they see that we just sang about in that wonderful hymn, you know for certain that they see it. And I can tell you as a first-hand testimony that everybody I have ever talked to, after they get past the defenses and their, their brush-offs and their condescension and all of the other things at the beginning, if you patiently persist in talking with them, lovingly persist, there will come a period of time where they will get quiet and they will start to listen. And you can say something like, well, you mean you don't really see the design in this hand? And then the truth will come out. Well, you know, I kind of do see that. And when I was a kid, I kind of believed it was made by God. And da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It is there. And it is a ready connection, a bridge, when you want to talk to anybody about origins. So this talk today is a bridge from you to your congregation it's one where we need to take a few notes. It's, it's just a few notes because we're going to talk about, in this talk here, five minutes with a Darwinist. 
five minutes with a Darwinist exposing the fluff. And as you see there, fluff is going to be an acronym. Or we could call this talk, your friend thinks he's related to a chimp. Now what? So how are you going to not get into an argument? How are you going to talk with them about this whole idea of origin? So we need an effective way to do it, sometimes very, very quickly, in order to take it to your friends who probably believe in evolution on that. So, fluff. First thing we're going to do is focus the discussion, use the phrase less than persuaded. We're going to talk about two important unobserved events, a failed mechanism of design, or the two explanations of design in your hand, and then finally, the freedom that is found in creation science. I use this. I probably do 10, 15 radio interviews a year, and this is exactly the format that I use when I talk on the radio. It provides a guideline, and it works, because you don't get a lot of time to talk on the radio. So, first, focus the discussion. Yeah, focus the discussion. We don't have a lot of time. We want to define our terms, and particularly if you're going to be dealing with some people who are scientifically oriented, we want to make sure we use a reputable source. The good news is, there's only two terms, two terms that we even need to define. First, we need to talk about what evolution is, and the largest association of biology teachers in the world, the National Association of Biology Teachers, says that the diversity of life on Earth is the outcome of evolution. And we're not talking about just a little change, a little change over time, and the fact that some of you guys are evolving right before my very eyes as you change. This is the crux of the issue. What is the origin of the diversity of life on Earth? This, this book gives one explanation, spoken into existence by God. Natural evolution says no, God did not create nature, nature creates itself. You could not get two more diametrically opposed explanations. So, we need to get somebody who says that. So the National Association says the diversity of life on Earth is the outcome of evolution. So if I was talking to a friend or on the radio, I might say, first, when I'm talking about evolution, I'm talking about a process which is supposed to explain what? The diversity of life on Earth. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about evolution. Okay, that's a really important one. Now I follow up on the radio interview with an extraordinary claim demands extraordinary evidence. So if evolutionists are going to claim that their mechanism explains the diversity of life on Earth, I would expect to see what? A huge, huge amount of evidence to support such a claim. Let's see if the evidence is really there to support the claim. And then the second thing we need to define is just science. And everybody, everybody plugs into this definition of science because it's what we were taught when we were little children. And I just simply say, I hold that science is based on observation and testing. Isn't that what you guys were taught when you were in school? It's based on observation and testing. It's a, it's a different way of knowing. We make observations, we put them to the tests, we see if they meet them. So science is based on observation and testing. And in less than 60 seconds, you can really focus the discussion that evolution explains the diversity of life on Earth, and science is based on observation and testing. So, we have a, a little quiz in chapel today. And we're going to go 
one side against the other of the room. So we'll do a little quiz. Since the president is on this side of the room, we will call this side of the room the smart side, okay? And we will call this side of the room the dumb side, okay? So we have the smart side versus the dumb side. Okay, smart side. How would you define evolution? Evolution is supposed to explain what? Okay, we're not speaking in tongues. Uh, evolution is supposed to explain what? Diversity of life on earth. Okay, dumb side. Science is based on? There it is, right on the screen. Perfect, they're great. Did you, did you guys hear that? Yeah, that was pretty good. Science is based on? Observation and testing. Okay, next. Less than persuaded. We want to be a little skeptical of the things that we've been told by the world. And does that guy look skeptical? Skeptical. I don't think men can even do such a thing with their face. You know, it's like a that's strictly limited to women who can do such a thing. But we want to be a little skeptical ourselves of some of the things we've been taught. We want to be thinking and skeptical. We don't want to get into an argument, so we don't want to say, well, I just don't believe in evolution because the response would be, well, I just don't believe in creation. And you end up at an impasse with one another. We don't want to have that kind of organism. We want to be listening, but skeptical. So when you say that I'm less than persuaded, it means that you've been listening to the evidence, you've been thinking about it carefully, but you haven't been fully persuaded by what you've been taught in school. And you know what? If you've been thinking and you've been listening carefully, then it kind of implies that the person that you're talking to should also be thinking and listening to what you're saying. So you say, I'm less than persuaded. I'm less than persuaded because sometimes when you use the word believe, it takes on the idea of more fiction than fact there. So, less than persuaded. Because evolution is supposed to explain the diversity of life on Earth, I'm less than persuaded because when I watched my television shows and when I was in high school, all I got were observations of the huge diversity of one type of creature. So when you opened up your biology text, you saw all different kinds of dogs, you saw all different kinds of cats, you saw lots of varieties of one time, but evolution is supposed to explain what? The diversity of life on Earth not just the diversity of one type. So I'm less than persuaded because they really haven't shown me the diversity of life. I'm less than persuaded because I opened my biology book and I got changes in finch beak lengths. Say that real fast. Finch beak lengths. But evolution is about not supposed to explain the changes in finch beaks. It's supposed to explain what? The origination of the finch. That's what it's supposed to tell me how did you get the finch that's making the beak? In fact, how did you get the cells to make the beak? It's supposed to tell me the origination of these kinds of things. So I'm less than persuaded. I'm less than persuaded because I get changes in frequencies of peppered moths, dark moths versus light moths. But evolution is not supposed to explain the changes in frequencies of the peppered moth. It's supposed to explain the origination of what? The peppered moth. Hmm. Wow, that's, that's pretty important, if it's supposed to. I'm less than persuaded because I see lots of similarities of body parts. You know, I have a single bone in my upper arm and two bones in my lower arm, just like a dog does. You see, we have similar parts. 
And then they would assume, oh, you know, have similar parts, you must have had a common ancestor. Uh-uh. Evolution is supposed to explain the diversity of life on Earth, so it doesn't need to explain the similarity of bones, it's supposed to explain how the bones got different. And not only that, it's supposed to explain the origination of a bone. That's kind of tough. Realize there's more information to make one of your bones than there is one of those skyscrapers in downtown Los Angeles? How do you explain the origination of all that information? I'm less than persuaded because they haven't given me that. I'm less than persuaded because they talk about certain types of bacteria become resistant to antibiotics, but you need to explain the origination of a bacteria for me. So I'm less than persuaded because it really hasn't explained the diversity of life on Earth, and yet this is the principal evidence that I've been listening to very carefully that I was getting in high school and college, and it hasn't really persuaded me. So I'm less than persuaded on those things. You know, we need to be a little skeptical. Even the chimps are skeptical that they're related to you on that. Um, they, they don't know if they want to claim that, because I get a lot of stories, I get a lot of speculation, and when I turn on the television these days, I get a lot of computer graphics showing how a dog-like creature walks into the water, and before your children's very eyes morse into a whale. I get a lot of those things, but I'm not really getting good evidence based on observation and testing that explains what? The diversity of life on Earth. That's why I'm less than persuaded. We've heard it in the classrooms and we've seen it on television. We need to be a little skeptical we need to have a skeptical outlook on life. On that. So, you know, if there's anybody who's skeptical, this little, this little baby is. Because evolution does not really meet my full criteria of science, which is based on what? Observation and testing. Wow. Really good. And now, really, in just a couple minutes, you can focus the discussion and you can deflect an argument. Deflect an argument. Okay, downside. Evolution is supposed to explain what? Smart side. Science is based on? Dumb side. What phrase do we want to work out of our vocabulary? Well, I just don't believe in evolution. Smart side. We want to work in the phrase, I am? Let's persuaded. That's a totally honest answer. You know, and it doesn't start a fight. I've been listening carefully to what my teachers are telling me, and they haven't persuaded me that it's factual. Now, how do you really argue with that? That's a pretty good way of deflecting it. Okay, we're less than persuaded because there are two really important unobserved events. And these are really simple to memorize and pretty straightforward. First of all, if evolution is true, you have to get life going. And there is an unobserved natural origin of life. Natural meaning no God, no Lord Jesus Christ intervening. It has to happen through totally natural processes. So if evolution is true, you've got to get life going. The problem is no one saw it happen, and even more important in this day and age, nobody, nobody is close to duplicating it. Life is so complex, the functioning of life is so staggeringly complex that nobody 
who's close to doing it. And when you're a pastor in a church, you can say from your pulpit, in absolute honesty, this phrase, there is not a single scientific paper published by any research institution anywhere on the planet that documents a natural origin of life. Is that pretty definitive? Would the scientific people in your audience listen to that? There is not a scientific paper published anywhere by any leading research institution anywhere on this planet which documents a natural origin of life. And when I say this to secular audiences, I always toss out, oh, by the way, if you know of one, please bring it to me because I'd really like to see it after this talk. You know how many have been brought to me? None. Because it isn't out there. Yet evolution has taught that it's a what? Fact, fact, fact. If you would think something was a factual, you would get life going naturally. You know, nobody is even close to doing it. Nobody can adequately explain it. Nobody is out there. In fact, there was a conference just in 2011 on the origins of life, and there was reported in Scientific American. Look at the headline. Psst. Don't tell the creationists, but scientists don't have a clue of how life began. You know, if, if science is really the open-end search for knowledge, why wouldn't you want to tell the creationists? I mean, why don't tell us? We already know it anyway. We're smart enough to read the articles of that. Second, not only do you have to get life going, but if it's going to explain the diversity of life on Earth, you have to explain how one organism can change into a fundamentally different type of organism. And there is no known mechanism that has ever documented that by observation and testing. In fact, throughout all of human history, we observe one thing. Creatures reproduce faithfully and consistently, what? After their kind. That's what scientists really observe. And you can stand in your pulpit someday and you can say to your congregation in absolute honesty, folks, do you know there is not a scientific paper published anywhere on this planet by any research institution which has documented one creature changing into a fundamentally different kind of creature. Not a single scientific paper which documents that. Wow, that's, that's also pretty definitive, isn't it? So if evolution was true, if it was really a fact, you would be able to get life going naturally, and you'd be able to change it from one creature into a fundamentally different kind of creature. But those two absolute basics, basics of evolution have never been documented by observation and testing. Never. Not once. In fact, we see, oops, sorry, all different types of dogs, but they're always dogs. We see different, different types of bears, but they're all different types of bears, whether it's a grizzly bear or a polar bear, and grizzly bears can mate with polar bears. But we don't see creatures change into fundamentally different types. And here's an interesting paper. The 200th birthday of, of Charles Darwin's birthday was in 2009, so all kinds of papers were published during that time. This one was called Evolution in Action, a 50,000-generation salute to Charles Darwin. 
And this paper is reporting on the longest running experiment on evolution in the world. It's been going for 35 years. It's up at the University of Michigan, and every day they have petri dishes of E. coli. Every morning they take out 90% of them, destroy them, culture the remaining 10%, which reproduces many, many times in a day. The next day, 90% they destroy, culture 10%, 90%. They do this every single day for 35 years. And this is a 50,000 generation salute to Charles Darwin. I don't know why, because after 50,000 generations, the E. coli bacteria is still what? E. coli bacteria. How do they change to a different species? It's still E. coli bacteria. So I don't know why this is a 50,000 salute to Charles Darwin, because it, produce, it, it pretty much indicates that organisms reproduce after their kind. And you know who wants this experiment to keep on going until the Lord returns? I do. It's not a government funding, of course, but I'd like to see it run and run and run because I can make a prediction as a creationist. If this runs to where they have 500,000 generations or 50 million generations, two things are going to happen. That thing's going to go extinct due to mutational meltdown, or two, there's still going to be E. coli bacteria because organisms reproduce after their kind. And every time they hit one of these milestones, it really is just affirming that biblical truth over and over again. Okay, quiz time. For everybody, science is based on what? Evolution is purported to explain the? Not just the little change, not just changes in gene frequencies, not just changes in this, but it must explain the diversity of life on Earth. If I came up to you, uh, what, what phrase are we supposed to work out of our vocabulary? We just don't believe in evolution, and we are what? Less than persuaded. Less than persuaded because of two really important unobserved events. An unobserved what? Natural origin of life. And then, this is the tricky one. An unobserved what? Mechanism to change one creature into a fundamentally different type of creature. Neither of which have ever been observed on this planet. Okay. Failed mechanism design. This is where the talk gets a little theological and a little trickier at the same time. That's because you see a watch, you see design. Everybody, evolutionists, creationists, everybody agrees that life looks highly designed. There's no really debate on that. Evolutionists see it, we see it, everybody sees it. You'd have to really be pretty blind not to see it. The creationists state that Nature was designed by a real designer. And I normally don't get into this with other audiences, but I will here. What I mean by this, theologically, is a real designer with real personality, do you guys talk about this in your systematic theology classes, that exhibits real agency. Agency. When I was at Moody, Dr. Mayer drilled into my brain. Personality and agency. Personality and agency. Agency means 
but you have volition. You have intellect. You can act independently. You can think. Those are characteristics of real agency. You have agency. Angels have agency. God has agency. He is the agent. He is the intellect which specifies how he wanted life to be built and functions. He specifies it by selecting certain traits and excluding other traits because that's what volition does. Volition chooses and chooses not to do things. So God has agency, real agency. So we believe that design was due to that. Evolutionists state that the design in nature only looks like it was designed, but really wasn't. But the design in nature is just an illusion. Yes, this looks like it was designed, but that is only an illusion of design because there is no real designer behind it. Since there's no real designer, it cannot be real design. So they would say it's only the illusion of design. Well, how in the world do you explain something like this to get to an illusion of design? Well, I don't go into this with anybody else, but it's important. It all goes back to the fundamental question of causality. What is the cause? What is the original cause of something? Why is that important? Because causality is linked to credit, and credit is linked to glory. Really important. If you don't get the causality right at the beginning, you will never get the glory right at the end, and this is the Romans 1 argument. So, the scriptures say that the cause, the original cause of the creation is who? God. He's the creator. He's the cause, real agency. He gets the credit. He gets the glory. The main worldview that's opposing that is naturalism, which says there is no God. It presumes there is no God. It says there is no God. God did not create nature. Nature creates itself, and nature continues to create itself, but everything that subsequently follows on that. And how does it do it? It does it through two phenomena, which we observe, chance and natural law. Chance and natural law. And that's why just a couple years ago, Stephen Hawking said, because there is a thing of gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. That is why the universe exists. That is why we exist. So in their view, chance and law, or chance and necessity, is the other causal explanation in contrast to God. And so through chance and law, through chance, mutations, and through the law of natural selection, you're going to craft creatures which only look like they were designed, but really weren't. Is this making sense? These are the two explanations that are in competition with each other. It, 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 this, is, this is the debate of the day, is over this causality. So, nature... Or God. So, Daniel Dennett, famous evolutionist, said this in 2005. This is a really interesting admission. With evolution, however, it is different. The fundamental scientific idea of evolution by natural selection is not just mind-boggling. Natural selection, here's the key, 
by executing God's traditional task of designing and creating all creatures, great and small. Do you see what it does? It fills the role of who? God. Also seems to deny one of the best reasons we have for believing in God. The idea that natural selection has the power to generate such sophisticated designs is deeply counterintuitive. No duh. I mean, it's deeply counterintuitive. Incredibly counterintuitive. I mean, we don't, you don't end up with a, a space shuttle without real brains putting that together. And the fact that you can get something in your body that makes the space shuttle look like tinker toys can be designed by chance and natural law, that's profoundly counterintuitive. So why do so many people believe it? Okay, because they have a natural bent to want to believe that. Because it gives them the intellectual reason to deny the existence of what? God. It's not that this is profoundly intuitive and profoundly scientifically supported. It's profoundly counterintuitive. But people want to believe it anyway. Anyway. So, let's talk about these mechanisms of design that are there. The evolutionary mechanism design is based on Mutations. Mutations generate the varieties of traits that natural selection can select for or against. The problem is, this cannot begin to explain the design of life. First of all, mutations are random. And you don't have to be a profound scientist to know that you don't want mutations. You do not want to be a mutoid. And that's why when you go to the dentist and they x-ray you, guys, what do they do? They throw a lead apron over your gonads so that they don't get irradiated. Because you don't want mutations. Because mutations cause disease. Mutations cause cancer. Mutations break information down. So it's profoundly counterintuitive that something which we go out of our way to protect against is going to cause the, the risk for evolution to generate the diversity of life on Earth. Then natural selection. This is the key. If God didn't create nature, but nature creates itself, you have to find some way to get a brain into nature when you take God's brain out. So natural selection is the way to fill the bill to get God's brain into nature when you take God's brain out. So gentlemen, of those two words, natural and selection, what they call natural and selection up there, which one of those is the more important word? Selection. The smart side came through. Yes. <laughs> It isn't natural. It is selection because the ability to select is an indication of what? Intelligence. Volition. That's what it's an indication of. Now, nature can basically what? Think. Think. Because now nature can select. And they... They slip this in by comparing it to what they call artificial selection. In other words, I'm a breeder. I select for progressively hairier dogs over time, and I am selecting and selecting, and I am breeding them. I have a real brain. I can really select. 
But let me ask you, does this environment out there have a brain? No. That was an easy one. Does the environment have agency? No. It doesn't. It's an unconscious thing. And if I were to hold up to you a rabbit's foot right here and say, this rabbit's foot can select things, you would call that what? Idolatry. Because when we begin to ascribe traits like thinking and volition to inanimate things, that is called idolatry. That's what it is. So, the next time someone says natural selection does this, cut to the chase, get right to the mysticism of, of naturalism and ask them this. Show me the selector. Oh, that's a great question. Well, natural selection did it. Show me the selector. Ah, there is no selector out there. There is no selector. There is no brain. Then they'll say, well, you know, um, well, that's just a figure of speech, you know. They say, oh, okay, figure of speech. Well, figure of speech can't design. They can't design things. So you've lost your mechanism to explain the diversity of life on Earth and to explain all the design we see. Hmm. Creation offers a more rational explanation. First of all, these are all verifiable. It conforms to no patterns of design. Patterns of design. Now, if you want to recall the patterns of design, lift up the hood of your car, watch your engine while it is running. It demonstrates patterns of design right before your very eyes. It demonstrates multiple parts working together for a purpose. Does it not? That's a pattern of design. The only way you find multiple parts working together for purpose is when a brain is behind it. It shows precise timing, does it not? It shows fit and finish and tolerance and specifications. Fit, finish, tolerance, specifications, precise timing, and multiple parts working together for a purpose in 100% of universal human experience always indicates intelligence. This hand has multiple parts working together for a purpose with precise timing. So we, what human living things have, they have the patterns of design. They're complex enough so that you can't just explain them by random chance. They're very, very complex. And mathematically, you could quantify this if you needed to. And then finally, they show all or nothing unity, meaning unless all of the key parts are there at the right place at the right time, nothing is going to work right. And if someone wants an example of that, just say uh, reproduction. Everybody understands you need all of the right parts fitting together at the right time, at the right place, not just in the physical anatomy, but down at the sperm and the egg level. All those parts must fit together, and if they don't work right, you don't get offspring and if you don't get offspring, it brings evolution to what? A screeching halt. Wow. I can verify all of this stuff. Patterns of design, probabilities, and all or nothing unity. So when I put that head-to-head -head with mutation and natural selection, that makes a lot more sense.
And then finally, the freedom. Freedom found in creation science. Why not end on a positive note? I mean, if, if what I'm talking about really does conform to this word, and it does, then there should be some upside to everything. Not just that evolution is deeply counterintuitive and makes no sense. What are some of the things that creation science offers us? Well, first of all, it's the freedom to follow the evidence wherever it leads. To never stop investigating. You notice I was the one who said I want that experiment to continue until the Lord returns. I'm free to follow the evidence wherever it leads. Unlike Scott Todd, who said in Nature, the world's leading scientific journal in 1999, even if all the data point to an intelligent designer, such a hypothesis is excluded from science because it's not naturalistic. What? Even if all the data point to it? I mean, is that really following the evidence wherever it leads? How would you like if I did that as your medical doctor? You know, all the data indicates you got this disease, but I don't think so. I believe this. You know, nobody, nobody would do such a thing. It's because it's not naturalistic and they have a preconceived notion. Second, freedom from magic words. Oh, if you could just teach the kids in your Sunday school classes to really be attuned for these when they're listening to National Geographic or Nova or Discovery or anything in their, in their textbooks. Magic words like arose, emerged, appeared, gave rise to, burst onto the scene. You know, real scientists don't use these words to explain the origination of things. This building did not just emerge. It didn't just give rise to. Yet they use these words with living things in their explanations of their origins to skip over massive amounts of missing data to support their explanations. How'd you like it if I said to you, well, here's a medication i like you to take. It burst onto the scene yesterday. You know, it, uh, it's, here's a new treatment or something like that. Nobody, nobody does this. And the phrase evolved itself makes no sense. It's non-explanatory. These are non-explanatory words. And they're skipping over. And you know, I can give you the best scientific journals today. One that's published today. And I could circle these words and they'd be pouring from that scientific journal like water over Niagara Falls. Evolutionists live by these words. Arose, emerged, gave rise to, burst onto the scene. Those are the things. Three, freedom. Freedom from the self-delusion that researchers must somehow say that all of the design is only an illusion. Such as Richard Dawkins who says biology is the study of complicated things that have the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. I don't like being wrapped up in that type of worldview where Francis Crick, co-discoverer of DNA, said biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed but rather evolved. You know what he's saying? He's saying as, as, they, as they see the molecules and as they see things working together and as they're studying that in their heart of hearts just like Romans 1 says, it's clearly seen, they're the ones who have to take and bang their head against the wall and say, 
It was not designed. It evolved. It was not designed. It was evolved. It was not designed. Almost in a type of, of mental brainwashing in that respect. Freedom from the blinding and smothering presupposition that expects lots of mistakes and problems in living things due to a long billion year evolutionary history. A mindset that inclined to label things which we don't have an explanation for immediately as junk or vestigial, such as your tonsils, which are considered vestigial organs and thousands of kids have them removed needlessly, or your appendix, or portions of DNA, which in the 1970s and 80s, it wasn't coding for proteins, and so, well, it was just junk left over from hundreds of millions of years of evolution. In fact, it was even used as evidence of evolution because it was so junky in their opinions. It was the creation scientists who said, wait, 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 not so fast. We may not know what it does now, but we should continue to look for purposes and functions of that DNA. And guess what? It's been found. What was junk is now treasure. Not junk DNA. I don't like being in that mindset that thinks like that. And then finally, freedom from religious conclusions masquerading as science, such as, such as this one by Carl Sagan, who begins his book, The Cosmos is All It Is, Ever Was, or Ever Will Be. A totally naturalistic expression of their worldview, but it's not science. And don't, don't, don't get into arguments about naturalism or this or that. Just cut to the chase. And if Carl Sagan was still alive, you could politely say, Dr. Sagan, you said the cosmos is all that is, ever was, or ever will be. What scientific experiment did you do, and what paper did you publish it in that demonstrated that? Wow, what a way to stop an argument. Because he can't do an experiment to prove that. The experiment would what? Still be going. So he can't prove that. So just cut to the chase and just ask those things. Another article says, Michael Shermer, who's a skeptic, publishes in Scientific American, quoting Richard Dawkins, in one of the most existentially penetrating statements ever made by a scientist, Richard Dawkins concluded, quote, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect to see if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Well, that's his worldview, but I would say respectfully to Dr. Dawkins, Dr. Dawkins, what experiment did you do, and what scientific paper did you publish it in where you showed that there was no purpose, that there was no evil, no good? I'd like to read those experiments, Dr. Dawkins. But he has never done such a thing. This is a religious statement masquerading as science. Stephen Hawking, one of the Man on this planet is regarded as the smartest around. He says there is no heaven. <laughs> Stephen Knott's Hawking, the world-renowned theoretical physicist, finds no room for heaven in his vision of the cosmos. The 69-year-old says there is no heaven or afterlife for broken-down computers. That's what he calls your brain. That is a fairy tale, fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Dr. Hawking, what experiment did you do to show there was no heaven? Considering you're still alive? <laughs> you know? How did you prove such a thing? These are religious statements masquerading as science. 
Lawrence Krauss, a theoretical physicist at Arizona State University, says, the amazing thing is that every atom in your body came from a star that exploded. And the atoms on your left hand probably came from a different star than your right hand. It is really the most poetic thing I know about physics. You are all stardust. <laughs> you couldn't be here if stars hadn't exploded because the elements, the carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, iron, and all the things that matter for evolution were created in the nuclear furnaces of stars. And the only way they could get into your bodies is if those stars were kind enough to explode. So forget Jesus. The stars died so you could be here today. Scientific or religious? Totally religious. Just like Jeremy Rifkin's statement of this. We no longer feel ourselves, we, humanity, ourselves to be guests in someone else's home, God's home, and therefore obliged to make our behavior conform to a pre-existing set of cosmic rules which you all have sitting on your lap today, your Bible. It is our creation now. We make the rules. We establish the parameters of reality. We create the world, and because we do, we no longer feel beholden to outside forces. We no longer have to justify our behavior, for we are now the architects of the universe. <laughs> we are responsible to nothing outside ourselves, for we are the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. And ever. You know, that doesn't border on blasphemy. It is blasphemy. And it is a religious statement in the trappings and shrouds of science because he's not the architect of the universe. He doesn't create reality. He doesn't do any of those things. And there's no experiment which just can verify it. So really, we're in a major conflict between two worldviews. The one that says, God made nature, or nature makes itself, including all of us, and we just invented God. That's the bottom line. So you may not get a long time to talk with your friends, but someday from the pulpit, you can, you can share this as a message. You need to just focus the discussion, two things that define evolution and science. We're less than persuaded because the evidence they give us really hasn't shown an explanation for the diversity of life on Earth, primarily because of two really important unexplained events, a natural origin of life and a natural mechanism to change one creature into a fundamentally different kind of creature. In fact, your whole mechanism to explain the design of life of mutations relies on something which normally causes disease and death and some mystical thing called natural selection for there is no selector and there is nothing analogous in nature to a real brain which can do real selecting. I'd like someone to show me the selector one of these days, if they really had it. But you know, when I see the patterns of design and the probability that they're all infinitesimally small and I see dozens of examples in our body of all or nothing unity, I think that's a much better explanation for design. And I really like the freedom as a creation scientist to follow the evidence wherever it leads. I don't like being bound by magical words like a rose gave rise to burst onto the scene. And I really don't like being trapped into religious statements which are masquerading as science. And you can wrap that all up really, really quickly. And hopefully that will be something that you can use in your discussions, in your talk, and maybe someday share with your congregation. In order to help you to do that, we would like to make sure that you have, for your library, some booklets, some books, booklets as well. 
please pick them up out in the back. There is this wonderful book here, Creation Basics. If you have, uh, if you know children, it's a picture book going through all the basics of creation. Please take this or take a couple if you need them for your library and share them with your friends. This is the companion book, which is called Creation Basics and Beyond. It has all the scientific explanations for the things that are written in this picture book. These two, please equip yourselves with those two books. Then, talking about things on all or nothing unity and the design in your body, there's a wonderful book out there, I'm told written by a genius, called Made in His Image, Examining the Complexities of the Human Body. It goes through 14 systems, and they're just two pages apiece. And not only does it show all or nothing unity, but I think you'll, you'll, you'll end up reading these articles saying, Praise the Lord. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And then, constructing solid evidences for design, clearly seen. How to use words like fit and purpose and other things in your witness, which are touching buttons in people's minds, which the Holy Spirit can use, showing the wonderful design that the Lord is put in them. And then please, um, grab one of those bags and sign up for our free, and this is totally free, no obligation, our monthly news magazine, called Acts and Facts, and this will keep you current on things that are being developed in science, and we generally write articles about those every month that will keep you current. This is free, it's been free for 45 years, it will continue to be free, and this will help you. This is a wonderful resource to equip yourselves. Please pick those up, put them in one of those white bags on the back. There's going to be a debate, I'm not in it, but it should be a good one, on February 4th, between one, the president of one of our sister organizations, Ken Ham, and one of your favorite guys called Bill Nye, the science guy. And it's going to be held at the Creation Museum in the evening of February 4th. You can go to Answers in Genesis website, answersingenesis.org. There'll be a button and it'll be streamed live. I think it'll be quite interesting to see that debate. So that's February 4th on that. Thank you so much for the privilege of being here. Thank you for your attendance, and I hope we can come back again sometime. Let's close. Well, we're, we're right at 10, so, uh, but I thought since um, that was a lot to throw at you all, and some of you may have, I, I don't know if you're willing, if anyone has any either pros or cons, things that, that you really appreciated, he said, or things that you weren't convinced of, things that you would like to hear more about, uh, I thought I could write them down and then I can give them to Sam and he could help, you know, deal with them next week. But no, in seriousness, I mean, sometimes I know if something seemed like he was make, you know, uh, making a complicated matter too simple or brushing things under the rug, what, what did you guys think from things you heard? Hi, Jordan. One of the, there were a lot of pros, but I feel like I'll probably agree on all the pros. So for me, I wanted to throw out a con. Yeah. I feel like he kind of blew over the fact, like he talked to, he talked a little negatively, like, well, who's the selector? Where's, show me the selector. Mm-hmm. Well, like, we, we as Christians can't necessarily show the selector either. Like, we believe the evidence is better, and we have faith in who the selector is, and the evidence from scripture and from creation, we believe that evidence proves the selector better, but we also cannot show the selector, like... Yeah. So I, that was something that I felt was kind of missing, just addressing that, like, 
Yes, I think we can prove evolution is not scientific in the sense that we can't observe it, can't prove it, can't show it, but uh, the same can be said for us. Yeah, right. Maybe in the sense that we can't show who God is, but at least we have a mechanism in God. Well, we have a, we, we believe that there is a mind behind the world. And I think that's what he's saying is they don't think there's a mind and yet they see the evidence of a mind working. So, but yeah, that's a good, any, anything else? I don't want to, um, Marcus. Yeah. Along with that, the evidence of the mind sort of thing. Yeah. I thought that was a little shaky because, um, I mean, we, we do, we like, we interact with things that appear intelligent that aren't actually intelligent in some kind of process. It's like, like this, there's this, these AI things, they seem really intelligent. They're, mm-hmm. they're not, they don't have agency, but the idea that something appears to have intelligence or agency, therefore must have intelligence or agency, I, like that's, that seems wrong to me. All right. Anything else you guys um, questioned about or um, thought was unclear or unpersuasive? Marcus had another one. Uh, and then you go next, Melanie. I'll go ahead, Melanie. Mine was very short. I was just going to say I appreciated that he talked about not trying to get into, like, a power dynamic of, like, um, just, like, well, I don't don't believe that's true, but rather saying, like, I don't have evidence to persuade me that that is a true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Were you going to add something, Marcus? No. Uh, yeah, I had nothing negative. Overall, I thought it was pretty strong. It's just, it was a good reminder. Like, oh, yeah, there is no... Yeah. Nobody's like nobody has created life from nothing. The, the right. Put it in a test tube and let it. So with the AI question, I wonder. Um, yeah, the AI has the appearance of intelligence, but wouldn't you also be able to say that AI itself was a product of intelligence? Yeah. Like it didn't. It doesn't happen naturally. <laughs> like intelligent humans. Coded, the, you know, people like Marcus <laughs> wrote the code to produce the AI. Right, but like, there are there are cases where where like an environment or like a set of circumstances can kind of shape how something turns out mm-hmm. that uh-huh. appears to be designed. That, that that's a real thing that happens. Yeah. Yeah. I think he could have expanded because there was a quote he read and didn't finish the quote. And I don't remember which one it was, but the rest of the quote said, the scientist as a person can accept or believe that there was a creator. Right. When he was talking about like naturalism. And that as scientists, they cannot follow a path that goes outside of that naturalism. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's an important delineation that I wish he would have fit. Like, and I know there it's a whole other can, but to say like, as a scientist, we science has to follow this supposed path. This was also ten years ago. Which right. I think the last five years have shown us that science does not follow a certain path. Um, but that as individuals outside of that, and that I think that's a hard place as individuals to come to, where it's like on one hand we have to quote unquote believe one thing, but we also have to believe the other. And he kind of got into that at the end, where he was like science statements that were actually like theology um, right. well I believe blah blah right like and so do you believe it in a scientific observational way or do you believe it as a, a statement of faith yeah yeah I think that's and I think that dichotomy well and I know I don't want to say that it all just goes away for us as Christians because it can be challenging we, we have to deal with how to put together scientific evidence 
that appears to contradict, you know, the age of the earth, things like that. But I would argue that that, you know, having to have a set of rules of knowing in one sphere and then another set of rules of knowing outside of that, you know, your religious truth and your scientific truth is really like that, that the Bible does not hold, the Bible calls us to a unified, comprehensive worldview that explains all of knowledge, not, not different ways of knowing. And they were saying that it, they're holding them separately. Right. Right. So like, I can believe this as a scientist and I can believe this personally. Right. And if we come in and say, no, we need to have those concentric, not separate. Right. I thought that was his point when he showed all of like the real, yeah. like the theological language is that they, right. what they're talking about isn't a scientific theory. It is, it's like a, it's a worldview. It right. It is a religion. Yeah. Right. And it has the hallmarks of a religion. Right. Which is why, and I know, I know we're close on the end of time here, but you know, Romans one is really instructive um, in that regard. You know, talking about how they know God, but then they refuse to honor Him. So there is a religious element to the scientists who are refusing to believe in God. They are they're becoming, and it, Romans one says they become futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts are darkened. I really, I, I one of the things that, that he said that really struck me was how you know we have a natural bent to believe a certain way. And evolution actually gives us some intellectual arguments that we can use to believe what we want to believe already, that we are the rulers of our own destiny. We are the, the all-sovereign you know, beings of the universe. So 2 Timothy 2, I'll, real quick, and then I'll close in prayer. 2 Timothy 2, 25 is another helpful verse where Paul instructs us that actually people don't just believe things Logically, he says that he instructs Timothy to correct his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So there's actually a pride and self-reliance underneath our you know, supposed knowledge that actually needs repentance in order to see the world rightly, which I think is what we see in these examples of scientists. So. Yeah, their, their language doesn't wasn't just oh I believe this. They they were specifically sticking it to Jesus. Yeah, and they were and they were making allusions to the New Testament passages. Right, very like yeah. right. It's personal to them. Right. Yeah, God is the cosmos is all that is and and was and ever will be. I mean that's right. that's um that's our God. Jehovah God is all that is and was and ever will be. All right, let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you that your truth is unified, that it gives us a clear structure to, to unite things about the world that we see in science, and then also things about ourselves, our, who we are, um, the world around us, and, and the um, purposes of life, the big questions of life. I pray that you would help us to be more uh, equipped to answer these questions as we interact with others, and even in our own hearts and minds, God, I pray that you would help us to bring our doubts and concerns to you and to your word, and that you would strengthen us in our faith to, and, our, and our knowledge as well to understand you and your world more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen.